Well, amen. Uh, Bethany Hall, where are you at? Come on. We've reached a place in our church where a young woman, like Bethany, could type out five pages of her research on Daniel 3 and send it to us. We appreciate your questions. We appreciate your assertions. And uh, we're going to have a good time tonight. Tonight is going to be a great deal of fun for any serious student in this house. And in this house, there's a bunch of them. So that'll be awesome. That's true. We have several challenges before us this evening that we want to take the time to address directly from the outset. Our first challenge. This chapter is the favorite chapter in the Older Testament for multitudes of believers through centuries of time. That presents its own issue in that it's so discussed, so revered, and so admired that it could be hard to imagine learning anything new about this chapter. I'm really happy to say we will solve that problem this evening. You're guaranteed to walk away with new insights tonight. Now that brings us to the second issue that arises. We have embedded assumptions that our familiarity with the text produces. When you've heard something presented in the same way, redundantly, for decades, it can be really difficult to consider alternatives that our presumptions may have caused us to overlook. The answer to that issue will be entirely up to you this evening. It'll depend on the pliability of your heart. Tonight, we will uh, be thorough. Possibly quite lengthy. But that is what you signed up for. And it's what is necessary to mine God's word if we are to find the gems that were overlooked in previous generations. So as we get into the text tonight, we want you to know that the LXX, the Septuagint, reads dramatically differently in the chronology of the opening verses. And it has 60 additional verses that are not contained in other manuscripts. Now that fact alone compelled us to do far more than just cursory research. If that's what you expected from us, we did more. (laughs) We have spent months looking into these differences and would like to point some things of interest out to you. So this is the Septuagint version of Daniel 3.1 on the screen. In the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, you notice that your English Bibles don't have that. In the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, when he was governing cities and countries, and even all the inhabitants of the earth, from India to Ethiopia, your English Bibles don't have that either, he constructed a golden image Its height was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain that encircles the region of Babylon. Now, if the Septuagint is correct, tonight I'm going to give you a hint. That's a big if. But if the Septuagint is correct, then 16 years have passed since the beginning of chapter 2, which was in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, after his ascension year. Do you guys remember the study about his ascension year? This would mean that there were many years of Nebuchadnezzar's success that would have served to reinforce his pride. 
Now in the beginning, this seemed to be a plausible explanation of the contents of the contents of chapter three. This explanation was initially very appealing to us, but in the end, we believe that it is unwarranted or unlikely. And Peyton is gonna give you a few reasons why we think that. Okay, so according to Jeremiah 52, 29, and 2 Kings 25, 8, Nebuchadnezzar would have been involved in a two year long siege at the fall of Jerusalem during this period. This would make it doubtful that he was in Babylon taking the time to build a gold image. But that is only the first of the difficulties with the Septuagint in this regard. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls do not contain the LXX chronology. They are fragmentary, but begin with the words of gold. And we have a slide to help you with that. So as you guys can see on the screen, this fragments contain. We have a literal line-by-line -line translation for you. Are you ready? Gold, he, his, him, or height. Cubits, 60. He, his, him, or width. Six cubits. Province and Babylon. You guys catching that? Gold, height, 60 cubits. Width, six cubits. Province and Babylon. Since we never rely on a singular source, and the DSS are fragmentary, we work, we work very hard to triangulate between ancient manuscripts. The way the triangulation functions is that we compare each of the relevant manuscripts, all pointing to the same passage, and evaluate the efficacy of a supposed deviation, one that is different than the others. In almost every case, it is relatively easy to see how the wording is reconciled when triangulating between several languages. Often it's pointing to a beautiful picture that the manuscripts give you more flair, more color about what God is communicating. Unfortunately, this is not one of those cases, <laughs> This is a different kind of evening. I want to show you the triangulation of manuscripts. The Peshitta, which is a Syriac version, follows a text that must have been identical with the Masoretic text, the Hebrew version, as also does the Vulgate, a Latin version. The date inserted into the Greek version is improbable. At that time, if we take the chronology of 2 Kings 25.8, Nebuchadnezzar was engaged in a siege in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was taken in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar after a two-year siege. When you're looking at this, Justin's going to walk us through the dating of those manuscripts so that you have some appreciation for what we're doing. We are looking at all of the available information and why one is different than all others. So the, where we read from the LXX that's written around 300 BC, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are Hebrew manuscripts and they're dating around 100 BC. They may be inconclusive, they may be fragmentary, but they do not have that date that you read in the LXX. The Peshitta, that's kind of funny to say, say it with me. The Peshitta, these are Syriac manuscripts, and they date to around 200 to 400 AD in their composition. They do not have the date that is written into the LXX. The Vulgate, the Vulgate are a Latin manuscript, and they date to around 383 to 405 AD, and they also do not have the date mentioned in the LXX. 
The Masoretic, which many of you are familiar with, are Hebrew manuscripts, and they were developed between 500 and 1000 AD. They also do not have the dating that the LXX has. So let us help you draw a conclusion from these facts. The dates given in the LXX are not co-witnessed by any of the other manuscripts that we have available to us. While the date could be accurate, and the themes of the text would remain unharmed, even if the date is true, it has been the choice of every English translator to reject the LXX dates as an interpolation. Now, to be clear, that may not be the case, and the dates could be accurate and just have been omitted from the other manuscripts. But it does not appear so to us tonight. So the Septuagint is a valuable tool, but it's also a great translation of the original Hebrew Borlaga. I love that word. Borlaga. Borlaga. We do not, but we don't currently possess, possess this. Often translators try to help their intended readers by interpolation, interpolations which are well-meaning but often misleading. You have seen this in our modern translators' efforts to identify the fourth kingdom from Daniel chapter two. Remember this was remember this was the only king, not kingdom, not specifically named within Daniel. And nevertheless, the translators added the translators added their thoughts to help us. So you guys see this next slide. When you hear the word interpolation, just think inserted details that are not from the text. Prime example of this is Daniel 2.40 in the Amplified. And the fourth kingdom, in brackets, oh. Rome shall be as strong as I am. That's not you know what the text does not say? Rome. Same with the Nazbi. Rome is inserted as a pericope above the text, giving you the subliminal message that nothing else could be considered, despite the fact that Daniel himself does not identify the fourth kingdom as Rome. Now, if you happen to be a rum fan, then you probably don't mind that insertion. <laughs> but if it turns out that that insertion into the text is wrong, you might find a future generation comparing all of our translations, our written copies from our time, and asking why the NASB and Amplified did this. Yeah. Much like the LXX that has an insertion and the other manuscripts don't. Yeah. Now, when we're thinking about this, we're asking why the LXX is divergent from all other manuscripts. I've been working through this concept. We're going to stay on the chronology issue because it is pertinent to our discussions this evening. But it is possible that there are the other item inserted into verse 1 in the LXX, which was from India to Ethiopia. You guys remember that? Yeah. From India to Ethiopia is an example of a Jewish translator trying to relate or be a little more appealing to the Hellenistic world when the LXX was composed. Those were the boundaries of Alexander's empire, mm. specifically India to Ethiopia. Yeah. And he's naming a previous king with the same boundary lines, possibly in an attempt to be appealing. The other insertions, the 60 some odd verses that are there are things that would appeal to Greek rhetoric. So, uh, Although the majority of the text simply contains a very um, condensed answer from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we all understand represents their convictions, the Greek mind wants more explanation and values logic. And most of the insertions in the text are expansions of what they said. 
And for that reason, we think they should be rejected. It was hard not to think of the 2011 NIV, the 1984 NIV, and uh, any other text being found a thousand years from now and going, wait, this says Adam made love to Eve, and this one says he begat a child with her? What is going on? What did the original say? Yeah. And see, we're reading translations. Mm -hmm. To give you uh, uh, maybe a somewhat humorous example of that, because these are discomforting ideas. We would like there to be no disagreement. I just wanted to show you a translation comparison in three translations of Isaiah 11.8. Oh. <laughs> Isaiah 11.8 in the NIV from 1984. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Well, if you're reading it in the ESV, and you found that a thousand years from now, it's not just an infant, it's a nursing child. Well, depending on where you are in the world, the child might nurse from anywhere from six months to a sixth year, okay? Uh, so that, that would raise questions. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And then if you really wanted to throw your future readers for a loop, all you'd have to do is discover the King James. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass. Uh-oh. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. I imagine that would be pretty awkward to an audience that was not familiar with 16th century English. Now, imagine that you found these translations 1,000 years from now. And you had to ask yourself, which one is accurate? Someone stands up and says, the oldest is the King James. And then next is the NIV. And then the last to be developed was the ESV. Well, I might suggest to you that that's the exact wrong order in this case. We're not going to settle that debate for you this evening. But we are happy that we have all three translations to be able to triangulate and ensure that our understanding is on good footing. That's what we do when we triangulate. It's not higher criticism. We're not eliminating things from the text. We're simply looking at all the available information and trying to decide. Oh, man, that 2011, they were pretty concerned with gender neutrality at that time. And that's why this is translated that way. Okay, that's what we're doing. See, we cannot know with absolute certainty when Daniel 3 takes place. Again, we're triangulating through all of these texts. However, it seems to be intentionally connected to the content and chronology of Daniel 2. Yes. So instead of focusing on chronology, let's give a thematic overview. Because we believe the author of the book of Daniel, Daniel, wanted you to get the thematic flow of the books. Yes. So as you can see on the screen, Daniel 1 talks about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they are introduced into the text. They are tested together for 10 days. And the result was that they were ten times better than all other young men. The end of the chapter hints at Daniel's ability to understand dreams. Yeah. What an incredible ability Daniel has. Now Daniel 2 is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they're under the threat of execution. They seek God together, and he answers them. Daniel is the focal point of Daniel 2, even though they are as a team acting together. Daniel's the focal point. The chapter ends with Daniel at the royal court and in a high position, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are administrators within the province, but not in the royal court. That brings us to our text tonight, Daniel 3, where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are the focal point. Well, you're staring at that screen, something that we wanted you to get that is just uh, maybe not as easy to convey, is Daniel 1 introduces all four men. Daniel 2, all four men are present, but the emphasis, the focal point, seems to be on Daniel. In Daniel 3, all four men are present in Babylon, and the story is still continuing, but the focal point turns to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's as if the Spirit wanted you to know that all four men were of equal value, and all four men were tested in the same kind of ways, and we wanted you to see that. Amen. Now tonight, as we move forward, we want to acknowledge that the LXX chronology might be right. And that would actually not do any harm to the other manuscripts that would then be viewed as omitting the date. If the LXX is correct, then we have moved to the time period of the third siege when these events are happening. However, somebody say however with me. However. However, however given that the LXX includes 60 extra verses in this chapter, Another timeline seems more plausible and consistent with the other ancient manuscripts. So we would like to suggest a time frame that looks very familiar to you at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're not going to read this slide, but I would like to highlight that Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebopolesser, yeah. strong name, strong name, dies following the Battle of Carchemish. And Nebuchadnezzar begins his ascension year sometime in 605 B.C., and he sieges Jerusalem, taking Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah captive, which was the setting of Daniel 1.1. You guys see the next slide on the screen? This is a continuation that you have seen before and should be familiar. Uh-huh. Nebuchadnezzar begins his first official year as an ascended king between 604 and 603. During the second year of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's train. You guys remember the ascension concept. This is the second year of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's train. Daniel 2 picks up the story in the second official year of Nebuchadnezzar's kingship, between 603 and 602, which is the third year of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's train. Now, as we approach Daniel 3, The question is, what is the time frame? Is it nearly two decades from the rest of the storyline? Or did something happen in just a handful of years following Nebuchadnezzar's dream that made him uh, insecure, Hmm. needing uh, to compensate in some ways? As you might have guessed, we think something happened in the immediate proximity to Daniel 2 in the dream that was unveiled. Would you like to learn what that is? Yes. We're going to show you a cuneiform tablet held in the British Museum that may indicate the reason that Nebuchadnezzar felt the sudden need for affirmation. I didn't write anything on this slide. This is a cut and a paste from the British Museum's website. Excavated from an unknown location, the small ancient cuneiform tablet fragment that became known as Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle was purchased by the British Museum in 1896 from an antiquities dealer in southern Iraq. 
Now, the curator puts his comments about the tablet. I want you to notice his specific wording because we found this after we taught you the previous chronology. The tablet covers the period of 12 years from the 21st year of Nebuchadnezzar, 605 BC, which was also Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year, through the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, the reason that we're showing you this slide is that it seems to affirm the chronology that we have laid out perfectly. Notice that this secular source mentions Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year in exactly the same format that we have been presenting. We also found a translation of the tablet, and you'll be happy to know it's included as an appendix in its entirety in your notes that will be posted online later this evening. So for time's sake, we will not read the 32 lines of translation other than to say it is replete with military actions that Nebuchadnezzar had to take in his time of reign. Yep. The dates and the counting of years match what we have been sharing with you perfectly. Amen. But we do want to show you a portion of the text that is lines 11 through 14 on the reverse side of the tablet. So as you're looking at the slide, starting in line 11, in the seventh year, the month of Kislimu, the king of Akkad, the Akkadian king, Babylon, or otherwise the king of Babylon, mustered his troops and marched to the Hatti land. Hatti land. This is not Haiti. <laughs> this is in reference to the land of the Hittites, which would be eastern Turkey, it would be northern Syria, and northeastern Syria. So the land of the Hittites. And besieged the city of Judah. And on the second day of the month of Adur Adaru, he seized the city and captured the king. He appointed there a king of his own choice, received its heavy tribute, and sent to Babylon. In the eighth year of the month of Tibetu, the king of Akkad marched to the Hatti land as far as Carchemish. So the second siege of Jerusalem was in Nebuchadnezzar's seventh year. This is five years after Daniel 2 and the dream. And it occurred while he was returning from Turkey, Syria, or as we've heard, Hatiland. Now Jehoiakim was king of Judah, and he abandoned obedience to Nebuchadnezzar. He once was a vassal to Nebuchadnezzar, but he abandoned that obedience after a period of years. And he's now in rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. So what, is that, what does that cause? Well, it causes uh, him to capture Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar has to go capture him, and he's replaced in Nebuchadnezzar's seventh year. Now, the following year after that, Nebuchadnezzar had to again put down a rebellion in the year or in the area of Turkey and Syria. So Nebuchadnezzar has a lot going on. He has rebellions that he has to quell. As Nick takes us to this next slide, Hatiland is everything East Turkey through Syria and from a Babylonian point of view all the way down into Israel. And Nick's going to help you put these pieces together, but you're hearing the backstory of Daniel 1, 2, and 3. Wow. This next slide is very exciting to us. This is going to help you put all of these dates and these chapters together and give you a visual that you're going to want to take a picture of. So, 
We have the timeline in the book of Daniel according to the scripture and the cuneiform account that we just went over, that image that was found. So the first date here, we marked as Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year, and this correlates to Daniel chapter 1. Now, the second date that we have there is Nebuchadnezzar's second year. This correlates to Daniel chapter 2. In the middle of your screen, during Nebuchadnezzar's seventh year, you have a couple items here. The second siege of Jerusalem was happening, and King Jehoiakim was deposed during this year. During Nebuchadnezzar's eighth year was the point of, in time where you had another rebellion in Hatileh. And the last one, sometime shortly after Nebuchadnezzar's eighth year, is where we are tonight, Daniel chapter 3. Remember, in Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar is new. He's a new kid on the block, and he's still in his ascension year. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is only in his second official year as king, and the chapter displays his insecurities with the advisors that are likely leftovers from his father's reign. Additionally, Daniel 2 shows Nebuchadnezzar's uh, warming to the four Jewish heroes of royal descent that are excellent advisors. In the time between Daniel 2 and 3, a rebellion has occurred under Jehoiakim during Nebuchadnezzar's seventh year. After putting down a Jewish revolt, Nebuchadnezzar had to return in his eighth year to the same area and put down another revolt that was probably the very people Jehoiakim had allied with. This is likely the setting that Daniel 3 picks up in sometime after Nebuchadnezzar's eighth year. Guys, this would mean that Nebuchadnezzar had a real and genuine experience in Daniel 2. You guys remember that? Yeah. yeah. was strange seeing these things. Yeah. But that his heart was hardened subsequently. You know by who? Jehoiakim and his rebellious action. Mm. Did you hear earlier that Peyton noted that our four Hebrew children are royals? Who are they related to? Jehoiakim. Additionally, the repetitive uprisings in the Turkey-Syria area that was referred to as Hatiland may have furthered Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity as a leader. This may provide substantial insight into why Nebuchadnezzar is behaving the way that he does in Daniel chapter 3, when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have only been helpful to the king, the king of Judah back in Israel has been rebellious, broken his word, sought alliances against Babylon and forced his own removal, and that is their family. Also, there are numerous recorded uprisings in Turkey, in Syria, or the Assyria area. This may be why Nebuchadnezzar was so easily manipulated against the Jews, because he has this in his background over the last several years, since the good moment in Daniel 2. So you've been studying this story since you were in Sunday school. As you engage with that slide, understand that Daniel 1, Neb is a new guy on the block. Okay, he, he's, he's trying to figure out how he's going to fill daddy's shoes. In Daniel 2, he's, he's in his second official year as a king. He's passed his ascension year and he's completed two years. But that explains why he has distrust of his daddy's advisors. Then, in his seventh year... 
the Jews that were so good to him in chapter 2 and revealed the dream to him, in his mind are ethnically and familiarly related to the ones that are rebelling and, and breaking their word and causing him to have to go back and deal with them. Yeah. Can you see where that would be a problem? Yeah. yeah. Okay? And about the time he gets that settled and he deposes Jehoiakim and sets Jehoahaz in place, he gets back home, he has to run right back and deal with the allies of Jehoiakim that helped him rebel. That helps explain the setting in Daniel 3 where he's not just a schizophrenic that in Daniel 2 uh, had a good experience and now suddenly has a total change of heart. Things have happened in his history that made him not sure that he could trust in the way that maybe he thought he could trust. Can y'all engage with that for a second? Yeah. Yeah. I hope so, because it was weeks of work to figure this out. Thank you. Now, the other thing while you're staring at this is our lengthy study in Jeremiah should have made you aware that Jeremiah was warning the Jewish people against rebellion on Jehoiakim's part. If you go back and look at the contents of Jeremiah 25, look at the contents of Jeremiah 36, it provides for you the political background in Israel for the very events that are happening between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3. Because Jeremiah is repeatedly doing something in those chapters. He's saying, hey, Jehoiakim, Judean leaders, do not rebel against Babylon. This will only cause bad things for all of us. Do not do it. This is God. Submit to what God is doing. And Jehoiakim and the Judean leaders did rebel. Well, we've laid out our hypothesis regarding the timeline. And it is always possible that the LXX was right, and many of the same motivators could be present at the third siege. We could see how that's true. However, when we get to Daniel 4 next week, we believe that our timeline is going to become even more convincing to you. As we read Daniel 3, let us take note of a couple things. When Israel obeys the Lord, then there is supernatural deliverance. But when the leaders of Israel disobey the prophets of the Lord, then it becomes more difficult for even the faithful Jews. We're going to see that tonight. We're going to see faithful Jews, good figs in the land of Israel, that life becomes difficult because Judean leaders are rebelling in Israel. Tonight, we will read about faithful Jews. And we're going to read about supernatural deliverance that comes upon the people of God as they are faithful to God in the places where they go. Is that exciting to you? So who is an anointed man who wants to stand up and pray for this meeting? It's Matthew Piro.
we get to hear from a sexy grandma narrating Daniel 3. Miss Jen, would you read to us? No, that wasn't enthusiastic enough. There we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the heralds loudly, loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with anger, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, <laughs> if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Yeah. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Amen. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king commanded was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement as he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Look, I, I have to do something for my own benefit. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. I have to get a few corny things out of the way up front or else we can't have a bit serious Bible study. First, I never grow tired of hearing my wife read the Word of God. I think it's amazing. The, the second is, I'm just going to go ahead and get this one out there. Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. Huh. Now I don't have to say it anymore. I already did it. I'm not going to make jokes about fireproof or fire-retardant trousers and houses full of scuvalon. Now we can move on as Justin Linton helps us in the third chapter and first verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, in the opening lines of Daniel 3, the majority of Christians throughout the ages, ages have immediately imagined this slide. The traditional associations with the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar set up are less than half correct. We're going to start with the part that is probably right, and then we will directly address the numerous things wrong with the commonly held views that many of us have had and many of us have heard and many of us have said. Are you ready to get out of felt board Christianity where because some old lady put it on a black felt board as a cutout, now that is what has formed all of your thoughts about the Bible? Yes. Well, that's good. So we're going to hand out a few scriptures and we're going to go through how Daniel 2 refers to gold about four times. So Rob, you're going to get Daniel 2.32 Nick Rosales, you're going to get Daniel 2.35. Uh, Adam, you're going to get Daniel 2.38. And Hayes, you will get Daniel 2.45. So read Daniel 2.32 when you get there. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms are silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. All right, so the head of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream was gold. Just like the one we're seeing in Daniel 3. It was gold. All right, Daniel 2.35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. 
The wind swept him away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So a rock struck the feet of the statue with such force that it broke even the gold head to pieces. Even the gold head. Daniel 2.38. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. You are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was the subject in Daniel 2.38. So Nebuchadnezzar's dominion was represented by the head of gold. Amen. All right, Hayes, hit us with verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hand, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so the dream represented future events for the dominion of Babylon and the successive empires that would rule the region that they were speaking of here, that the region that they were in. Hattiland. They would all <laughs> fall to the kingdom of God, represented by the rock that became a huge mountain. Now, Nebuchadnezzar undoubtedly liked being the head of gold. Oh, yeah. He, he had a gold grill on his caddy. <laughs> he had a gold chain around his neck. Man, Brother had that Babylonian blade. <laughs> I'm the most valued man. I'm the supreme. I'm the gold. Except focusing on that conclusion misses the point of the entire vision altogether. All the Gentile kingdoms would fall to the kingdom of God. Yeah. He made an image of gold, but it was not of himself or of the statue from Daniel chapter 2. Now that we've said that, let's read verse 1. One more time, and listen to the precise words that the Word of God uses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, mm. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so the text does not say the image is of Nebuchadnezzar or a statue at all. Wow. It does not say it. It is it said it's only an image, and this should be revelatory to many in the room. The proportions would be a problem if it was a statue, meaning in the English here, 90 feet by high by 90 feet wide. By nine. Uh, by nine. Uh, its height is 10 times its width. Say 10 times. 10, ten times. times. Now, these proportions are not even what Nick and Regina are. <laughs> Although Brutus, Brutus, the dash hound, he's closer. time with Elder Eric. They might be a little bit closer to these dimensions. This image is 60 cubits by 6 cubits in the original language. And our dynamic translations obscure the symbolism that's being displayed here by trying to convert the units. 60 units of measurements multiplied by 6 units of measurement is not accidental. The product is intentionally 360 units. Y'all ready to learn something? Oh, yeah. yeah. Where did we get 360 degrees in a circle? Or where did we get 60 minutes in every hour? Where did we get 60 seconds in each minute that is counting by on our clock right now? As the Babylonians had a 12 months with 30 days in each for a total of 300.
360 days in a year. The Enuma Elish create, credits that to Marduk, the creator, that it was given from the supreme god. Wow. The Babylonians divided time into 60 specific divisions. In an hour and in the epic of Gilgamesh, presents its hero as racing against the sun in those one-second increments, in those divisions. Their hero is somebody who outran this kind of time that was God-ordained. They counted in this system. The Babylonian priests were astronomers, and they had 12 signs, similar to the zodiac, that governed the 360-day year. You getting that the measurements and cubits were specific? Were they were there for a reason? The Babylonians developed a sexagesimal system, counting by 60, and it made its way into worldwide mathematics. Have you considered that? Worldwide <laughs> mathematics today is from their system. Through degrees in a circle, or the way that we view time in general on a national level, or international level, every bit of it was in devotion, in veneration of the Babylonian pantheon that it was believed to descend from. So, counting in a base 60, having 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in each minute, all reference to time was also devotion to a Babylonian pantheon. I want to read you something from another secular source. Our notes quote all of the sources, and they're at the bottom of the screen here. Counting from the new moon, the Babylonians celebrated every seventh day as a holy day. That sounds good. Also called an evil day. Not so good. Meaning unsuitable for prohibited activities. On these days, officials were prohibited from various activities, and common men were forbidden to make a wish. And at least on the 28th day, it was known as a day of rest. Each of them, on each of them, offerings were made to a different god and goddess. Apparently, at nightfall, to avoid the prohibitions, Marduk and Ishtar on the 7th, Neely and Nergal on the 14th. If I mispronounced his name, then he'll still hear me from hell and understand. <laughs> Sin and Shamash on the 21st. What a name. And Inky and, get this one, Ma, Ma. on the 28th. <laughs> now, the reason that we're, we're doing this is the way that the Babylonians reckoned time was directly linked to the worship of their pantheon of gods. Wow. Degrees in a circle, minutes in an hour, and seconds in a minute were intrinsically linked to their version of the zodiac. In fact, they're the first history of a zodiac. The Greeks borrowed it from them. And all of it is associated with the worship of their deities. Wow. Now, we want you to keep that in mind as we move forward thinking about what this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up was. Remember, it's very important, that this image is never at any time called a statue. Never at any time is it said to be in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. Never at any time is it said to resemble any human form. Those are all things your Sunday school teachers misled you about. Hmm. So when you consider the proportions of the image, 
It resembles an obelisk, perhaps recounting Nebuchadnezzar's victories, his gods, and even time itself. I want you to consider this obelisk as an example. Oh, this is a nice one. Yeah. So this obelisk is at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. This obelisk from Egypt was brought to Rome by Emperor Caligula. Not nice a guy. nice guy. Nice guy. In 37 AD. It originally stood in his circus on a spot to the south of the basilica, close to the present sacristy. Sixtus V had Domenico Fontana move it in 1586 to the center of St. Peter's Square. It also is a sundial. Uh Uh Uh-oh! Its shadows mark noon over the signs of the zodiac in the white marble discs in the paving of the square. Wait, read that again just to make sure nobody was sleeping and notice that this information came from a Vatican-sponsored website <laughs> called the stpetersbasilica.info. <laughs> so what is in the Vatican is also a sundial. Its shadows mark noon over the signs of the zodiac in the white marble discs in the paving of the square. The obelisk rests upon four couchant lions, each with two bodies whose tails intertwine. Now, originally inscribed to divine Augustus. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Wow. And divine Tiberius. Uh-oh! The only two emperors whose Jesus life's crossed. <laughs> and now dedicated to the Holy Cross. Its inscription reads, Christus Vincent. Mm. Christus Regnat, mm. Christus Imperat, mm. Christus Ab Omni Malo Plebem Swam Defendant. But what you need to know is that this Egyptian idol, this Egyptian sundial, is now topped by a bronze cross containing a fragment of the true cross of Christ. It's okay! It's got, it's got a fragment of the true cross on top. It's like the only thing that would be better is if it had a gold pyramid at the top. <laughs> so obelisks have been used to record victories in Egypt since 2000 BC. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar came into power immediately after defeating an Egyptian monarch. His name was Necho. Obelisks from Egypt, or imitating Egypt, have circulated the world since biblical times. Some estimates place 70 known obelisks in the world today. Random number. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now, obelisks have been used to promote the divine leadership of pagans who still claim other gods since the dawn of time. Obelisks have been used to measure time and draw attention to celestial deities for millennia. Yes. That was the purpose. And obelisks often had a golden pyramid-shaped cap at the pinnacle. Wait, did y'all hear that? Yes. What is often at the top of an obelisk? Gold! So, while you're amusing yourselves with the thought that Catholics still do this to this day... And it is funny, by the way. It's pretty funny. We want you to consider this obelisk in Central Park. Wow. Late in the 19th century, the government of Egypt divided a pair of obelisks 
giving one to the United States and the other to Great Britain. One now stands in Central Park, New York City, and the other on the Thames Embankment in London. Although known as Cleopatra's Needles, wow. that sounds holy, <coughs> they have no historical connection with the Egyptian queen. They were dedicated at Heliopolis by Thutmose III and bear inscriptions to him and to Ramses II, who reigned in 1279 to 1213 BCE. Carved from the typical red granite, watch these dimensions for a moment. They stand 69 feet, six inches, or 21.2 meters high, have a rectangular base that is seven feet, nine inches by seven feet, eight inches, and weigh about 180 tons. Wow. So the obelisk in Central Park from the 1200s BC is the same 10 to one ratio wow. as what is being described in tonight's text in Daniel chapter three. Wow. However, the gold image, the obelisk, set up by Nebuchadnezzar is even larger than the one that you see in the picture. Now, as Peyton helps us put this in perspective, there's some things we didn't put in the notes because we're really nice and we're gentle people. <laughs> the very same word for image is used in the book of Ezekiel to describe a phallic symbol. Oh. I'm going to leave it right there. Let's go ahead, Peyton. What we got? So to help you gain a perspective of this structure with a peculiar shape, it's a little more than six mid-sized sedans. Or if that doesn't help you, a little more than two and a half, so about two and a half, two and a quarter city buses. For you marine biologists, this is two humpback wells and apparently the tip of a third. <laughs> what about those of us from Texas? Help us out. All right, so if you're from Texas, this would be a little more than one semi-truck. And if you like to travel, about half of a 757 airliner. Now that's the height. Let's show you the width of this structure. Give me an idea of the width. It is a little less than one mid-sized sedan. Are you guys understanding this? For a statue to be like this, it would have to be about five times as tall and narrow as any representation of a human being would ever be. In addition to that, the text doesn't say it's a statue. It's describing an obelisk that starts at the bottom, about the size half of a sedan, and then towers into the skies. Now, contrast the height width ratio. Nebuchadnezzar's goal image, his obelisk, because you're accepting this with us right now, because yeah. anything else is ridiculous <laughs> to consider. No, we would never tell you what to think. We want to tell you how to think, and if you would like to be ridiculously wrong, disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens to be a 10 to 1 ratio. We want to show you another slide that is the Statue of Liberty that you are so familiar with. Okay. <laughs> the Statue of Liberty is 111 feet tall. Miss Liberty's got some special little hips there. Yes, she does. And they're only 35 feet wide. I heard a song about this once. She's kind of a brick house. When the French built this statue for us, it might be the nicest thing that that nation's done for us, they did it with a height-to-width ratio of 3 to 1. 
What we're talking about in Nebuchadnezzar's time is a ratio of 10 to 1. It is not a statue. Although generations of Christians have imagined the golden image set up by Nebuchadnezzar in the form of the statue in Daniel 2, they're wrong. Various methods have been adopted to protect and defend this erroneous assertion, ranging from, well, it had a really big pedestal, to manipulating the text. It clearly makes more sense to view the golden image as an obelisk that was associated both with the keeping of time and foreign gods. Mm. Now, there is absolutely no reason to show you this next slide. But we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Other than we're in a good mood. You know, if you're thinking that it might be a statue of something else, well, dachshunds are among the most comically proportioned animals on the earth. (laughs) But even they are not on a ratio of 10 to 1. You see, they're on a ratio of about 4 to 1. So obviously this cannot be a statue of a dachshund that Nebuchadnezzar set up. It's either a statue of a worm... Or it's an obelisk. <laughs> so you've gotten to your minds that it cannot be a statue. Yes, thank you. Now let's examine another false association with this image. For whatever reason, people have often read into the text that Nebuchadnezzar is demanding worship of himself. The truth is that only worship of the image is commanded and not worship of himself. Direct worship of Nebuchadnezzar is never requested in this chapter. Justin's going to hand out some verses, but let me just help you between the lines here. The chain of assumptions starts with, oh, it's a statue just like the one in two, but it doesn't say that. Then the next assumption is, I think he made it of himself, but the text doesn't say that, which lends to Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to worship him. And the text never says any such thing. That was all presumption given to us by previous generations that just didn't take the text seriously enough. Interpolation. So who would like to read? Let's get um, Caleb, Daniel 3.5, Spencer, Daniel 3.7, Nick Rosales again, Daniel 3.10, JJ, Daniel 3.12, Rhett, Daniel 3.14, Josiah, Daniel 3.15, uh, Abambola, Daniel 3.18, and Paul Rosales, Daniel 3.28. Are y'all having a good time yet? Yes. 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 Daniel 3.5. There you go, Caleb. Go, that when you hear the sound <laughs> of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down <laughs> and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. All kinds of music going on this time. Bagpipes. Bagpipes. What were they to worship? The image. So this is going to be a theme in all these verses. And even to the point of nauseam, we're going to walk you through and make sure that you understand what the text actually says. We wouldn't beat you with this if you didn't have it wrong when you walked in here. (laughs) Thank you. What about Daniel 3.7? says, Therefore... As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all kinds of nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, they fell down and worshipped 
the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, not the image of gold that was King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, you guys getting it so far? Yeah, Daniel 3.10. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music will fall down and worship the image of gold. Fall down and worship, what is it? The image of gold. Daniel 3.12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Daniel 3.14. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Hmm. So we have several more verses, but it's, it's so clear that it is an image of gold and not an image of Nebuchadnezzar where he's requesting worship of himself. Daniel 3.15. Now when you hear the sound of horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, then what God will be able to rescue you from, from my hands? So again, an image that was made that is to be worshipped. Daniel 3.18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So there are at least seven references to worship the image of gold in our chapter tonight. How many? Seven. With seven direct Peshat references that say what the worship is of. How could we read it any other way? Now, in the conclusion of the chapter, pay close attention to Nebuchadnezzar's wording in Daniel 3.28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Oh, come on. Did you hear it from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth? Yes. 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 Worship of the image of gold was associated with the worship of Babylonian gods. Does it make sense why we took you through a mathematics lesson, through a history lesson? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was not demanding worship of himself, but rather the image. The image itself, itself, at the very least, constituted worship of foreign gods. That's what he was calling for. This is likely because the image was an obelisk that included Nebuchadnezzar's achievements on it. His divine right to rule. You remember those rebellions going on? His divine right to rule and detailed the time and associations of worship for the Babylonian deities on it. These things were in association with the zodiac as they were governed. Exactly like the one at the Vatican. Whoa! That's a sundial. Has inscriptions of powerful men who wanted to be associated as God's chosen divine leader by the pagan gods. This was a symbol of power and Babylonian worship, and Nebuchadnezzar says it himself. Are y'all starting to get a little bit more clarified picture? Would y'all like to go deeper? Yes! Well, amen. We'll return to verse (laughs) 1. Making progress. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 
and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, all we know about the location is that it is described as the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So let's tackle the Dura slide. Dura was a common name in Mesopotamia for any place that was enclosed by mountains or a wall. Does that sound very specific to you? No. no. So typically, a place enclosed by mountains or a wall could be called a Dura, but this location, ironically, is called the Plain of Dura. So let's tackle that slide. On the Plain of Dura, the location of this plain is uncertain. The word plain in itself presents a translation problem in certain languages. It is a rather large and relatively flat area, sometimes referred to as a plateau in English. It is sometimes used in contrast with a hilly country. So the issue with the location is that the descriptors involve a contrast. So it's not giving you uh, exactly what it is. It's involving a contrast. A hilled or walled enclosure on a large and relatively flat area in contrast with hilly country. Now, this does not describe the royal palace that Daniel resided in. This doesn't describe where he was. But it may describe the provincial areas of Babylon that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were administrators over. All right? Remember that chapter 2 closed with these words, Daniel 2, 49. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Where was Daniel? So in the text, on the plain of Dura, this does not describe where Daniel remained. It describes, it could describe where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, province of Babylon. So here's how one commentator summed up his opinion on the location of this gold image. And we wouldn't share it with you if it wasn't correct. (laughs) (laughs) So this is on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. More likely is the site about 16 miles south of Babylon called Tulul Dura. Yeah! The Tells of Dura, where Opert thought he had discovered the base of the statue. Wow, apparently some dude went out there and thought that he saw the base of this image out there. Nebuchadnezzar would likely have constructed this monstrosity some distance, but not too far, from the city, so that it would not have been seen until its grand unveiling on Dedication Day, i.e. not right there on the temple grounds. Moreover, the text states that the image was set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, although the city of Babylon would have been in the province, a plain would suggest a location outside of the city walls. Finally, Daniel probably would have stated that the image was built in the city of Babylon if that were the case. Pretty straightforward. So as we move deeper into the text, it is likely that Daniel is not mentioned because Daniel has remained at the palace on official duty. The story that we're reading about takes place on the plain of Dura 
in a provincial area of Babylon where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were administrators. Pause for a second, Peyton. Who had that question before you came in here tonight? Where is Daniel? I heard even one commentator suggest he was raptured. Okay. <laughs> the second chapter tells you he remained in the royal palace. The third chapter tells you we are now on a plane called Dura in the provincial area. Yeah, we, the text is the best commentary on itself. Amen. So this separation in location also serves to highlight these three men's outstanding character as the focal point of the chapter in the same way that chapter 2 highlighted Daniel. By the way, the whole thing reminds us of the Tower of Babel and the plain of Shinar. But we don't have time to go into detail with that tonight. What is coming next in the text looks like the events in the book of Revelation. Come on. Y'all want to hear it? Oh, yes. yes. Then let's pick up in verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. All right. Daniel evidently likes lists more than some biblical authors. But just to make sure that after two repetitions, you caught all eight groupings that are identified twice and are all, every one of them, under the category of provincial officials. Oh, I'm not sure I understood that, Judah. All eight groupings are identified two times. Everybody say two times. Two times. And they are all under the category of provincial officials. As Judah goes through this list, tune your ears into something that you've missed. Okay, We don't have more than one governor in the city of Babylon where Daniel is. Where are the governors? Out in the provenance. We don't have more than one satrap in the city. There's already a king for the city. What we are describing is the provincial administration. Satraps. Prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and other provincial officials. This seems to emphasize the pervasive nature of the obedience at every level of the provincial government. Every one of them. To this practice, except one specific group. The faithful Jews, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These events are paralleled in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 13, 12 through 16 together. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Mm. He ordered them to set up an image. Wow. Not a statue? No. An no. image. In honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to breathe or give breath to the image of the first beast. So that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Wow. He also forced everyone 
small, great, rich, poor, mm. free, slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or forehead. <coughs> Guys, Revelation 13 has an enigmatic figure that commands the worship of the angel. You're going to see these connections grow. Image. image, sorry. So in Revelation 13, we have a command to worship an image, just like in Daniel 3. Well, Revelation 19.20 names the figure who commands the worship of the image. Revelation 19.20. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Mm -hmm. The two of them were thrown alive. Into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. I'll give you a hint. They weren't saved by a fourth man in the fire. <laughs> Many more references could be cited. But for now, what we're drawing your attention to is the connection of the false prophet who set up an image and the specific wording of Daniel 3.4. Are you all ready as Justin goes through? You ready to hear it? Yes. All right, pause right there. Then the herald, kind of like a false prophet. And look at what this herald does. Loudly proclaimed. Loudly proclaimed. Keep going. This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down So what we've just heard is that Revelation 13 and Revelation 19 is clearly paralleling the story of Daniel with a false prophet substituted for the herald and the worship of an image by peoples, nations, and men of every language. Wow. Interesting, is it? Yeah. Are you ready to make more connections? Because yeah. we have 45 minutes and the best is yet to come. Okay, so Daniel chapter 3 and verse 5 began with the words, as soon as. Now, that on the surface, that might not look very important to you. But we want to speak to you about that phrase, as soon as, now that you understand what the obelisk does. It tells time. Look at this next slide. Daniel chapter 3, verse 5, as soon as. As soon as. When? A marker of a point of time roughly simultaneous with another point of time. We have an Aramaic word here that we're speaking about. The word is idana. Okay? Idana. Somebody say that. Idana. Idana is the Aramaic word that we're working with. Not Arabic. Aramaic. Edena did not like it. Uh -oh. <laughs> it refers to a marker of a point of time, which is why these translations handled the verse differently. We have a slide to show you some different translations wow. of the verse, because guess what? We're going to triangulate our point here Come tonight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to look at several translations. The first one is Young's literal translation in Daniel 3.5. At, at the time. At what? At the time. time. 
that ye hear the voice of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the set foot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you played that. Hey, what, what instrument do you play? Uh, the Psalter, the symphony, and all kinds of music. Ye fall down and do obeisance to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath raised up. In the KJ, or the, the New King James Version, that at the time. The time. The time. You hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music. You shall fall down and worship the image of gold, worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And the Lexington English Bible, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and all kinds of music. Keith, did you hear that? The drum? Oh, yeah. You must fall down and worship the statue of gold that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. So for brevity's sake, we have a summary slide of eight Aramaic lexicons on this specific lemma. Is eight enough for you? Yes. yes. <laughs> the time, a year, a particular point in time. The BDB says time, goes on time, year, time, year, time, years, set time, moment, mm. thus set time for the study, time, year, an indefinite period often marked by specific attributes or activities yeah. that take place with it. And then it concludes time, year. The reason that we're making this point is that the musicians would not know when to start playing if there was not a marker in time for them to do so. You know when you're supposed to bow down. It's when they play music. But how do they know when they're going to play the music? Because the obelisk tells time. Each of these markers in time are associated with different Babylonian deities that you're bowing down to. And the image was... Definitely an obelisk that also served as a sundial with 360 degrees, which is why it was proportioned exactly as it was. This is even more emphatic in verse 15. Now, when is the phrase? The same phrase with additional emphasis. It is pointing to the hour mark, the time mark, that everybody knew you're supposed to be worshiping this deity. Now, as kind of a working definition, you could read the sentence as, now, when the particular moment in time, particular point in time, is you will hear the musicians and must bow down. Is that clicking? Y'all getting it? Well, just in case you're having trouble capturing the imagery, we want to describe some things to you. A giant obelisk that was covered in gold, or at least, a gold pinnacle was used to honor Babylonian gods. It likely casts a shadow on the constellations on the ground that are dedicated and governed by Babylonian gods. Additionally, it may have had the achievements of Nebuchadnezzar inscribed upon it. If you're having trouble visualizing this, all you have to do is go look at the exact same pagan image that now stands at the Vatican or one of similar construction in Central Park. And then you can envision what's happening. The only difference is Neb's is bigger. <laughs> <laughs>
attention. <laughs> All right, let's pick up in verse 6 and go to 8. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. At this time, they came forward and denounced the Jews. Wow. Now, notice that the denunciation is against the entire people group. The entire people group called the Jews. Why would that be? Why would that be at a set time to worship their gods? There's a time also to denounce the Jews. Well, we're going to give you some scriptural basis for this. We're going to start in Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20. It says, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel, he has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. <laughs> there was only one people group on the planet that Adonai entrusted his word to, and it was the Jewish people. This awesome endowment also came with awesome reprisals from the other nations around them. Consider Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20. Deuteronomy 4.15 says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. So the Lord revealed himself to Moses in a bush that could not be consumed by fire. You following me? Yeah. And the Lord revealed himself to the entire nation all at once, speaking from out of a fire at Horeb. Look at what verse 15 goes on to say. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Come on. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. This incredible blessing came also with a very serious warning for the people of God. Watch yourselves very carefully. Jews have never been permitted to indulge in the kind of idolatry that the nations around them swim in yeah. throughout history. Yeah. So when Jews do fall into that wicked, demonic behavior of the nations, then they are disciplined by God. When they don't, they are hated by the surrounding nations. So if they do, they're disciplined by God. If they don't, they're hated by the surrounding nations. One might adapt the saying from our time. Blessed if they do, blessed if they don't. Blessed if they do, because they get disciplined by the Lord, and that is a blessing. Amen, church? Amen. Yeah. And they're also blessed if they don't, because when they do not obey those other gods and worship them, they are blessed by persecutions. Amen, church? Amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 16. And you guys are good church folk. I, I love it. You, you're sweet. I grew up in a house that was not so sweet. I know that's shocking to you. And a common expression in our home was, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. Ironically, it was true of my relatives. <laughs> in this case, the position that God himself has placed the Jewish people in is if they participate in what the nations do, then they are disciplined. If they do not participate in what the nations do, then they are persecuted. And the irony is, 
being in that position ultimately blesses them as a people and causes others to look at them differently. So let's look at verses 16 through 19. So that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. Whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, Uh do not be enticed into bowing down. Do y'all catch that? We're in Deuteronomy. This is is before the time period of Daniel. So uh, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Wow. So from the Tower of Babel forward, all the nations participated in these kind of events, but there was one nation that was blessed with the law, and they were claimed as a peculiar people, a people for the Lord himself, and this is the nation of Israel, and they were not to engage in these kinds of practices. Verse 20 goes on to say, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting Furnace. Furnace? Furnace? Out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. Hey, where did you hear earlier the obelisk originated from? Egypt. Egypt. He took you out of that iron smelting furnace. The Jews living in Babylon at this point were apparently living and loving obedience to the Torah. They are the good figs that Jeremiah spoke about. They recognized that they had been delivered from the smelting furnace of Egypt to be a distinct people and were determined to live up to their godly and holy calling. Come on. Now, about 125 years before these events in Daniel 3, Isaiah had given the nation of Israel a prophecy. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you. Nations in exchange for your life. The prophet Isaiah was informed by the foundation of the law. Namely, that God's people, Israel, would always be distinct and therefore a hated group. He understood that they would walk through the fire again and spoke to them in advance a warning of this reality. So the law foretells these events and had the people delivered from the furnace, the iron smelting furnace of Egypt. The prophets foresaw these events and warned the people to remain faithful as they endured them. Tonight in Daniel, we are reading from the writings and we will get to see the example of how to walk faithfully through the fire in a given historical setting. But let's read one more passage from the writings. To help you see that this is and always will be the pattern. The book of Esther takes place after 
these events in Daniel. So this Deuteronomy before, Isaiah before, Daniel we're in, and now we're reading about what will happen right after Daniel's day. So Esther 3, 8 through 9. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you people. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. They keep themselves holy. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them, wow. to tolerate this holy people, this peculiar people. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Look, the basis of hatred for the Jews is always the same. The nations hate a certain people who keep themselves Kodesh, yeah. that keep themselves holy, that keep themselves distinct and separate. The nations will not tolerate the existence of a people that are distinct in holiness that comes from trust-grounded obedience to the Tanakh. They will not tolerate that because what it says about them and their gods. This hatred is wicked, but it is also a manifestation of jealousy. The wise men of Babylon are jealous of the Jews who are able to interpret dreams. They're able to keep their distinction, and they're able to walk closely with their God. They're jealous of that because they can't do it. So as we prepare to go back into Daniel, ask yourselves for a moment. What kind of people ought you to be? This is not an Older Testament thing. In fact, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount together. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 is where we're going to end this string. It says the first word right out the gate. Blessed. Say blessed with me. Blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel here. And he's reminding them about what was said all the way back in the Torah. He's reminding them about what the prophets said in Isaiah. He's reminding them about what Daniel and Esther laid out. And he's saying, hey, this is going to be a repeating pattern in your life and history. This, this is still something that is going to come. You're still going to have a life that is full of insults, persecutions, people saying false things of evil against you because of me. But what are the Jews supposed to do when they get in these situations? Rejoice! They're blessed! They're blessed for being in this. And guys... We worship the God of Israel. Yes. Yes. We worship the king of the Jews. So when we get in these situations ourselves, guess what we are? We're blessed. Amen. And we are called to rejoice in them. How about, chapter, how about verse 9, Linto? They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
<coughs> there are some Jews who have set over the affairs of who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So I think these guys have a chip on their shoulders. So earlier we found out that the accusation was leveled against the entire ethnic group. So why is it narrowed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here? The answer to that question is that they were men in positions of power and they had been esteemed. And the other wise men in the province, well, they were jealous of their position. And then that jealousy caused them to lash out and level their accusations. You guys following that? So let's pick up in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to, to rescue you from my hand? Man, these questions. In our last session together, covering Daniel chapter 2, you may remember that the scenario raised two key questions. We'd like to throw that slide back up. Is there a people on earth that can hear from God? Yes. Is there a people on earth that God lives among? Yes. Of course, as you have already answered, Daniel 2 answers those questions. It was the Jewish people who could hear from God. The Jewish people upon whom God's presence rested and he lived among them. Now tonight, we have another question. We have one key question from tonight's text. Nebuchadnezzar himself asked it. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? <laughs> Now, I want you to appreciate something. As you sit here tonight, you are 2,618 years beyond this event. <laughs> this means that you've had a little while to think about it and how you would answer this question. Remember that these three Jewish boys only had minutes. How difficult decisions become to you when you don't have time to contemplate them. <laughs> what we want to suggest to you is that some decisions must be made in advance of the presentation of the question. That's called having convictions. You might want to tune your ears into this quote from C.T. Studd regarding the subject of convictions made in advance and the attitude that we are to have when confronted with them. Difficulties, dangers, disease... Death or divisions don't deter any but chocolate soldiers from executing God's will. When someone says there is a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, we pick up in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. 
But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, this is convictions that have already been prepared in advance. Amen. But we're going to share verse 16 with you from a few different translations. We're doing this mostly because we can't get enough of this statement. <laughs> we just like it. We just simply love it. But also because hearing the translations will give you more appreciation for the level of convictions that were already present in these young men before this situation arose. For example, listen to this Daniel 3.16 in the King James Version. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. They did not need to take special care or consideration in their answer. Their minds had been made up by the word of God long in advance of this day. They did not need to take careful attention to answer this matter. How about in the NASB? Listen to verse 16 in the NASB with us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Now, they might not have felt the need to respond at all to Nebuchadnezzar's question. This is really tantamount to saying, hey, do your worst, big guy. Come even better, get me. Even better yet, our actions, our, our answer, O king. Okay, how about the ESV? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now they might have been saying, we have no need. But since you do have a need, here is what we have to say. <laughs> We're going to get the Young's literal translation last. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have answered, yeah, they are saying to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need concerning this matter to answer thee. They might have been saying that there's no need on our part that might make this negotiable. You have nothing that I want or care for, so I'm not considering this question. You guys getting a flavor for this? Yeah. yeah. We love their answer. Whichever particular translation you happen to look at. Matthew 10, 16 is where we would like to go with you next. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over. Hear the same language as Isaiah, when or will? Yeah. To the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it, was not me, not, it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Guys, that's such a comforting passage. The Father speaking through you. So when you think about their answers earlier in the various translations, do you hear Jesus? Do not worry about what to say. He could have said it in the King James. Don't be careful in what you say. He could have said it in the ESV. He could have said, hey, you don't have any need to answer them. But since they have a need to hear you speak, you know, it, 
What we want you to notice is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were acting in complete unity with what Messiah would tell his people 600 years later. Wow. Yeah. We could give you long scripture strings about developing your convictions, but let's face it, you've been hearing that from me for 20 years. Instead, we want to show you something very special. It's a prophetic picture of your future. On the left, we have one-fifth of the world's population bowing to the Kaaba. They say it's not a god. They say that it's not worship of the Kaaba. But you know better. On the right, you have three men in a sea of people, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and much like you, who simply have a core conviction, I will not bow. Not to a governmental mandate, Anything that our government requires that God forbids or that God forbids and our government requires, I will not bow. Church, this is a prophetic future for this body. When you look at that, you are thinking, we're thinking of people that will be sent out of this room into those lands to that yellow map. How important is it that we get this conviction inside of us now? Good thing we're getting some practice, Treaster. Yes. Let's pick up in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. So this is the second time in our text that Nebuchadnezzar is said to be furious. Furious! First in verse 13 and now in verse 19. What may escape your notices at first is that he is also at least slightly reluctant to do this. He's giving them some chances. Look at the proclamation in verse 6 of Daniel chapter 3. It says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, this was the herald that proclaimed immediate execution. For anyone who did not fall down and worship. To be fair, this is not Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were already known to not be in compliance with this federal mandate. (laughs) They were already known as men who would not bow down. You're not wearing a mask. That's right. (laughs) But when they come before Nebuchadnezzar, this is what happens in Daniel 3, 13 through 15. Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. If. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. I'm not sure when he says immediately, it means immediately. (laughs) Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. So when the three Hebrew men come before Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? Well, we know what he doesn't do. He does not immediately execute them. But instead he questions them and he actually offers them an opportunity to comply. It may only be a subtle hint here, but it is possible that this is because of Nebuchadnezzar's experience 
with these particular men in Daniel chapter 2. They have history at this point. Now next week, we're going to talk not about the seven years of Jacob's trouble, but about the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's trouble. There's a beautiful picture hidden behind all of these ugly circumstances regarding God's ability to bring all men to the same conclusion. Hashtag the struggle's real. Struggle's real. (laughs) Let's continue to read in verse 20. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. As a military strategy, this is kind of cute. It's the fastest way to lose your best soldiers. (laughs) (laughs) So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So this is quite the event, and you've heard many sermons on the subject, so we're not going to belabor the point tonight. However, it is Nebuchadnezzar that sees a fourth man in the fire. Now, this Gentile king has now experienced divine revelation through dreams and has even seen an angel with his own eyes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, have y'all grasped that? Testimony, man. It's worth noting in the next verses that Nebuchadnezzar does not call for the angel to come out of the fire. (laughs) Have you enjoyed in Daniel 3 the things that you thought it said or it didn't say? This is why I love foundations. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar, he calls only to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, guys, come back. Yeah. Hey, uh, so... Leave that other one there, and you come out. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever that big brother is, uh, he can stay. You come out. I think it's uh, ironic that he sent his best soldiers to throw them in the fire, and then uh, they died before, and they fell in, so they literally dropped the ball and kicked it. So, but if we had unlimited time, we would probably be telling you all the ways that the Jewish nation has acted as a mediator between Gentiles and God. We would probably tell you that the king of the Jewish nation is the sole personification of that role. Uh, and you can reference 1 Timothy 2, 5. But we're going to do that on another night. With, with our remaining 13 minutes, we're going to go to verse 26. But what was just said there is worth you contemplating. Joseph was an intermediary that helped Egypt understand God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are intermediaries that help this Gentile power understand God. And the king of the nation, Jesus Christ, is the intermediary that helps the rest of humanity understand God. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, 
and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not torched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So 26 and 27 are obviously beautiful verses. What we wanted to point out to you was something that was slightly humorous. If you remember that in verses 8 through 12, it was specifically the Chaldean astrologers that brought the accusation, yep. who leveled those accusations against the Jews. Where did they go? Everybody's crowding around, but the astrologers are nowhere to be found, not mentioned in the text. It's almost as if when they realized that God had vindicated the Jews despite their accusations, they found somewhere else to be. Now, Accuser dismissed, just like John 8. What does it speak to you that the Babylonians all saw this deliverance and crowded around the Jews in admiration for what God had done? How many supernatural deliverances has Israel experienced from 1948 to the present day? As we're talking about miracles in the Six-Day War, things that could only preserve a nation by God's mighty right hand. How many Christians do not crowd around them in admiration? Mm. The world at large sees them fighting for the land that God said they're supposed to hold and being supernaturally delivered, and the response is condemnation all around. Wow. We might have more respect for the Babylonian officials than we do for the UN. <laughs> Lastly, Nebuchadnezzar used a specific term to refer to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Wow. Higher than my obelisk! <laughs> This is a dramatic proclamation given that he is standing or near to the obelisk in the backdrop. Come on. This is his symbol of power, the symbol of the Babylonian gods. He dedicated this thing to exalting his gods above all others. And he's saying, I'm the guy that they chose to rule. And God showed these three young Hebrew men to be servants of the most high God with that in the background. It's actually very reminiscent to the Gates of Hell discussion. But uh, let's go ahead and get to 28 and go through 30, Brother Linton. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Do you hear that reiterated here? The core issue was whatever they were being asked to do did constitute worship of Babylonian gods. And Nebuchadnezzar said so and respects them for not doing it after he sees God is with them. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. <laughs> then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This, this really has to uh, be frustrating to those that were jealous of their position because after their attack, they're raised even higher. higher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the standout stars of this chapter are the three Jewish men who honored their God by honoring what the Tanakh said. They did it in the most difficult circumstances and were an extraordinary witness to the world around them. The chapter ends in almost exactly the same way as chapter 2 
where the circumstances were different but equally lethal. And yet, a Jewish remnant acted honorably and was an extraordinary witness to the Gentile world. If you haven't noticed it yet, this book, Daniel, is about Israel becoming all that Adonai has destined Israel to become. We are strengthened. We are encouraged by Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael because they show us what is possible for Jewish men who love the Tanakh. The writer of Hebrews, well, he lifted these men as an example for all time of what faithfulness is. Hebrews 11.34 has the phrase, they quenched the fury of the flames. What other story could the writer of Hebrews be talking about other than this one? He also said their weaknesses were turned to strength. These are not supermen. They're ordinary men that love an extraordinary God because of an extraordinary book. What message does that speak to you? And our final thoughts, Justin is going to have a unique twist on Philippians 1, 18 through 28, or at least selected portions of it. I would like you to imagine that this is Daniel writing to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel, in the palace, writing to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provincial area. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with the Messiah, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now as we hit verse 27, imagine it as Daniel speaking to Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. I knew I was going to do it again. (laughs) Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, and that you will be saved, and that by God. Isn't that an interesting thought? that Daniel could have written words exactly like that 
to his three friends who did exactly that. But then the fact remains, it wasn't Daniel. It was Paul. And he wasn't writing to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's writing to you. Will you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you? Men like Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael and Daniel did it a long time before you even knew there was a God. And you're strengthened by their examples. And you're filled with the almighty spirit of holiness from God. So should more or less be required of you. More. Pastors. Stand to your feet with us tonight. Can you put, uh, just back up one verse, Sydney? Just back to verse 27. When you begin to put together the pieces of what you heard tonight, just to remind you that the timing of it and our corrected timeline, I want you to understand that what these three Hebrew men did of royal descent puts them closer to, uh, Miranda, how old are you? 22. 22. Uh, Josiah, how, how old are you? 22. Okay, so it puts them closer to Josiah and Miranda's age than it does to Pastor Nick's age. That's such an inspiration. That's such a challenge for us to make sure that these convictions are getting set now because we're going to have to demonstrate them in the days ahead. Amen. And it is our joy and our great privilege to be able to do so. Philippians 1.27 says, whatever happens. Say, whatever happens. Whatever happens. I love what the Lord is doing here. He is creating through his word and through his spirit a people, a singular body of people who will be able to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever may happen. Amen. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know. Don't you love that kind of language from Paul? Yes. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Say, in the one spirit. In the one spirit. Striving together. Say, together. Together. As one. Say, as one. As one. For the faith of the gospel. Look at what God is doing in our midst. He's giving us the key that these three Hebrews understood the team that God placed them in. And they were to, able to operate in a manner that says, whatever happens, we can conduct ourselves in a way that pleases our Father. I saw two blessings as a part of this teaching tonight as it relates to striving together as one. That blessing, it comes in the form of hearing God's word. Well, in response to hearing God's word, there is a discipline that happens to the sons of God. The second blessing is when God lives among you, it draws in the opponents of God in the form of persecution. 
and in both put together, as we strive as one man, we are doubly blessed. We lack no good thing because we strive together in unity that's based around the word of God and his presence at work within us. This is what I see within this body. This is what we're forming, that together we're developing deep convictions based on his word so that as those days come, we are unmoved and remain standing just like those three men did. Father, I thank you for this congregation. Lord, we ask that in these days, Lord, you would help us to delight, Lord, in your word, but in a way that forms real, lasting convictions. Lord, we know that you are a good God and that we will face these kind of trials. Lord, and the end result will be that your name will be glorified. Hallelujah! we will be a blessed people because we are persecuted, just like that first century church. Lord, that you will cause us to rise like those three children. Lord, rise to greater and greater heights with every persecution that we go through. Let your spirit breathe upon us this evening that we might walk out your word, Lord, with deep, heartfelt convictions that do not bend and do not break. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.